Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino, coming to you a week late because I've just returned from the first part of my paternity leave after my wife and I welcomed our son into the world in early August. Everyone is happy, healthy, and I'm excited to be back with you all. It's also back to school time, so we have a temporally appropriate episode for you all today. I'm sure you are familiar with the political controversies swirling around schools. I'm not talking about the mask mandates. I'm I'm going to leave that to some other people to discuss on their podcasts, Uh, but I'm talking about the debates over curriculum uh, infused with critical race theory, school-organized or sanctioned walkouts surrounding gun violence and climate change, standardized testing, and much, much more. Our guest today is my colleague Bonnie Kerrigan-Snyder. She leads FIRE's high school outreach efforts after a 20-plus year career working in education, and now she's coming out with a new book called Undoctrinate. How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. In Undoctrinate, Bonnie argues that, quote, our nation has a problem. Recently, in both urban and rural communities, young children are being indoctrinated, bullied, and harassed by their fellow teachers and students for not falling into line on various topics. She writes that students are forced into premature ideological conformity with some teachers and administrators who seem intent on pushing their own particular worldview in K-12 through classroom. This is a problem, she argues, because public schools, as of course actors of the government, should not be directing our children on political issues at all. They are supposed to practice viewpoint neutrality so that young people, eager to fit in and please those who formally evaluate them, won't feel the need to conform and yield to the clear dictates of government officials. Bonnie, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. It's great to be here. So this is, uh, as I mentioned, a very relevant topic for this month, this time of year, and this era that we live in. It feels like high school curricula have sped back into the headlines. I remember when I was growing up, it seemed to the discussion about high school curricula seemed to be around abstinence-only education. I don't know if that was the case nationwide, but I know in Illinois that was uh, the mandate from the from the government. And as a result, there were a lot of debates happening around that. What what led you to write this book at this particular moment? Well, I, I think that I've been concerned about this topic for a number of years. I think that I was probably among the last to go all the way through school when it was completely sane, if, if that makes sense. And by the time I went back to graduate school, a lot of these ideologies that are causing problems now had arrived on campus, at least at the, at the graduate level. Um, but more recently, I did have to, this is 10 years ago now, but I did have to remove a child from a school where these sorts of ideologies uh, were playing out. And, um, and so, you know, for me, it's personal. I was very quick to recognize what was going on. And it wasn't even just the politicization that was happening. But more importantly, and this is happening to a lot of people, there was deception around the uh, the politicization that was happening. And I did catch people lying to me. And so it was more than just a question of being a bad teacher, which I think that they this person was but also just a bad person. Uh, it, you know, this lack of transparency between school and home is, is really a big part of this problem. And the problem has gotten more headlines, I guess, in part because of COVID and parents seeing more of the, the teaching that's happening in their students' schools or their kids' schools uh, as a result of online-only education. But I want to put some more meat on the bones before we dive into that a little bit. You talk in your book about that incident you referenced or that time period you referenced with, I believe it was your daughter. Can you talk about some of the things that you were seeing at that time and how they've changed or not changed or gotten worse since then? Like, What is the politicization that we're seeing? What is the ideology that is being pushed 
uh, in K through 12 in particular that that's concerning to you? Well, there were several incidents at my daughter's school. Uh, the one I write about in the most, some of them are so wacky that they almost defy telling because I, I think people would believe me now. Back then, I don't think people would have how ridiculous things got. But what really got to me, uh, one, well, one thing that really got to me was that my daughter was asked to read the Communist Manifesto, which I have absolutely no problem with. Uh, but then, having read that book, she was supposed to debate in class the merits of communism versus capitalism, and they were given no readings on capitalism. And her entire class, except my daughter, um, concluded that communism was a better uh, system than capitalism, and the teacher did nothing to uh, challenge or to uh, even in, enlarge on that on that notion. And, uh, my daughter came home afterwards and said, well, and then the kids also went around and, uh, and basically personalized it by saying, well, you know, she's wrong because capitalism is evil. And that was the level of, of analysis that was going on in this classroom. And it, it really did, uh, but she, she was very upset because she said, you know, I would have liked to be able to defend it, but she didn't equip me, my teacher with anything. Uh, you know, I had, I had nothing to work with. So of course I'm concerned that the Marxist elements are not being balanced with, um, you know, teachings about the entire economic system that our country and the school itself operates under because it was a private school. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, situation we're facing today, I guess, with the politicization of, of the classroom deals more with identity and what people are calling critical race theory than rather arguments around the economic system. Although you are, you are seeing debates surrounding the founding of the country, right? The uh, inclusion of the 1619 project in, in high school curricula, for example. What are the debates that we're seeing unfold on on uh, within schools right now? Sure. I mean, obviously, so-called critical race theory is a big part of it, and it is sort of a fusion of identity politics with, um, you know, there are elements of Marxism there. Uh, a lot of this philosophical, the background is sort of obscured, and it's sort of old wine and new skins, I guess you could say. Uh, we, you know, I, I keep this running list of what I call, uh, K-12 whoppers. And just to give an example from the last week or two, the, the two examples that popped out, like every day, there's another one at this point, uh, back, you know, when I pulled my daughter out of that particular school, uh, it was very difficult to find examples of these incidents because people are often afraid to talk about them. For a number of reasons, they're afraid of retaliation on their child, which is really a, a, a terrible indictment of the school because there's no reason for adults to be taking retribution on a child. But I think they recognize that some of these people would be willing to do that. Um, but the two, case, two examples that pop out just this week is that uh, yesterday there's a case in California where a teacher took down the American flag and replaced it with a gay pride flag and told the class to salute that flag instead, uh, which is a very strange choice. Uh, and that's being investigated apparently. And then uh, there was a teacher in, U that was in California, that in Utah, the first day of school, she didn't make it past day one. She informed the class that they should get vaccinated. If they didn't agree with that, they should keep their mouths shut because she would only make fun of them if they spoke up. Uh, and then she told them that they're smarter than their parents because their parents are all dumb. Go ahead and tell the administration. They won't do anything anyway. Uh, but at least the administration called her bluff and she was fired for that. The case that perhaps caught the most headlines, I guess, is what his name is Paul Rossi over at Grace Church, uh, which is kind of an, a Grace Church school, I believe it's called, which is kind of an elite school in New York City. He seemed to be very concerned about how identity was playing out within the school's curriculum, right? Yeah, I think he had to undergo a good bit of white privilege training at that school. And uh, this is happening in a lot of school districts as well, which is causing some legal cases to be filed on, on a, I think, Title VI grounds. I'm not, a, I'm not an attorney. Fire has many, but I, I'm not one of them. 
so he uh, he objected to it. And then uh, according to the New York Times article that came out this week, he was accused or I think he had a letter put in his file saying he had created a neurological imbalance in, in the students by by questioning what was going on, which I find uh, kind of awesome. The idea that that they would say such a nonsensical thing. Yeah, we dealt with a case in 2007 in the higher education context at the University of Delaware, where within the student life life programs, uh, they were segregating students based on race, based on sexual orientation, and uh, more or less saying, you know, dividing you into oppressor and oppressed, and more or less saying that these are immutable parts of your identity and there's nothing you can do to fix them. Uh, and it seems to be that's that sort of ideology that's becoming ever more pre- prevalent in the K through 12 context. The idea that the curricula are infused with this um, almost biological determinism. Like if you are a man, therefore you are this. If you are a woman, you therefore you are this. If you are black, you are this. And if you are white, you are this. If you're you know, white, you're oppressed. Or if you're black, you're oppressed. Um, and then when people object to this, uh, the, you get the you get the terms racist, sexist thrown around, um, and that's that's kind of the case at the Dalton School, which is another school that you talk about, I believe, in your book, in which parents, uh, wealthy progressive parents, um, were objecting to this sort of curriculum in their school uh, with some sort of success, although also some blowback, right? Yeah, we're seeing this problem playing out in a number of districts, but I would say not every place is infected with these problems, but the elite privates seem to be pretty far advanced. And uh, Dalton, I think, might possibly take the cake. And they've had a couple of uh, high, uh, you know, high publicity incidents, such as what you described. Uh, And, you know, we're also hearing that there's fear from parents, because if you do speak up, then your child won't be renewed for the following year. Mm -hmm. People are being told you're probably not a good fit here. Uh, which basically means get lost. And now you're dealing with your kid's peer group and potentially with their college applications. So it's in some ways like your kid is sort of being held hostage or being used as leverage to require you to keep your mouth shut, which really doesn't seem like a solid, robust education for, uh, you know, future generations of American in what's supposed to be a free country. There's one example, I believe it's in your book, we had all these walkouts, right, surrounding um, the Parkland shooting. We've had some walkouts surrounding climate change activism, concerns surrounding global warming. And there was one student at one school, I believe, in, in an example you discuss in your book, who objected to this and didn't want to participate. It was almost organized or sanctioned by the school. And the school's solution, or at least the first solution they proffered, was that he stand in the middle of the football uh, field or the track as the other students who were walking out of class walked the track around him. Uh, what, what's, where, where was that? Am I relaying that story correctly? Yep. It was a student in New Jersey who reached out to fire. If I remember correctly, his, uh, his older brother had been uh, a fire intern or something. So he was pretty well versed in rights, you know, student rights and uh, and he was calling on behalf of his younger brother, who just didn't believe in the cause. I think the cause was um, the March for Your Lives uh, with the with Parkland. Sh- it was after the Parkland shooting. There have been two walkouts, sort of school sanctioned walkouts, which is really really interesting. Uh, just in terms of the whole idea of seat hours, you know, I was a guidance counselor, and uh, you know, walking out of a school really doesn't meet the diploma requirements as expected. Um, within within um, state regulations. So this particular student, his brother reached out and I, I and the school kept asserting and insisting that this was not a political statement that they were making, even though the signs all over the school clearly indicated that it was political. And um, ultimately, I, I told him to go to your guidance counselor. And well, yeah, and and he said, can't I just sit in the school? while they walk out and they said, well, no, because we're walking out too. The the teachers had to walk out and everyone had to walk out for this one cause that, 
you know, some people don't believe in. Some people are more first, uh, second amendment advocates. And uh, so they said, no, you have to walk out. And he said, well, I just don't agree. And so, yeah, their solution was to have everyone march in a circle. And it, it, was, it wasn't even a real march. They, I think to keep the kids safe, they were keeping them on the track. So that, it was a real exercise in, uh, so it was intended as a, a strange exercise to begin with, but the guidance counselor wisely uh, went to the administration. He, I said, tell her that no, in no way do you feel comfortable having everyone march in a circle around you. And uh, they, they realized that this was ill-conceived. Yeah, the the conversation surrounding those walkouts is interesting. And I think the ACLU put out some good information about you know what is legal and what isn't legal. I mean, the idea being that Walking out of school is an act of civil disobedience for which you can be punished, right? Um, civil disobedience is something that lots of students, adults have gauged in throughout time to protest, you know, whatever their, the perceived injustice of the day is. Um, it's taking a stand almost, you know, and, and becoming a, getting punished for it is almost to become a martyr. Uh, but you have this weird wrinkle now where the administrations of these schools are supporting these walkouts which gets them into an interesting First Amendment predicament, right? Because if you're allowing some students, because of the viewpoint of their walkout, to get out scot-free, but not letting other students walk out and get out scot-free, uh, you have a viewpoint discrimination situation happening there. So if you, you know, the March for Our Lives is okay, but the March for the Second Amendment, I don't know if that's a real thing, but quote-unquote, if they punished a student for walking out of class for that, they got a real viewpoint discrimination case there. You know, I think what it ultimately comes down to is what the Supreme Court said in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, which is if there is no or if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that there is no official higher petty who can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And I think a lot of what your book gets to is the increasing prescription by government officials, that is public school teachers, uh, that students must ascribe to a certain political or controversial ideology, whether it's uh, saluting... <laughs> The, the gay rights flag or walking out uh, for to protest gun violence, the alternative being standing in the middle of a track as your as your uh, peers parade around you. I think one of the challenge we have and where the line gets blurry is that K through 12 is different in some sense. like there are there's a curriculum right and it needs to be determined by someone what is taught and what is not taught, right? K-12 is very different from higher ed. I mean, in higher ed, you're pushing outward the boundaries of knowledge. So you're asking, you know, maybe unorthodox questions and you are, um, you have greater freedom and latitude in what you explore, whereas K-12 education is uh, constituted differently and it's run differently and it's democratically governed if it's a public school. And there are standards that, teachers are supposed to be teaching towards that are adopted by the state. You know, you can find these. And I encourage people who are concerned about that to go to their state board of education site and see what the learning standards are for your child's grade in different subjects. And then look at what your teacher is actually teaching and ask yourself, is this covering what the state mandates? Because if it's not, then there's really no reason for public tax dollars to be used to cover it. Uh, typically, K-12 education transmits existing knowledge sort of along the lines of community consensus, uh, whereas higher education is pushing forth the boundaries of knowledge. And what we're seeing partly is K-12 teachers who are acting as though they have the academic freedom of college professors, which they don't. So theoretically, can an administration in you know, the most progressive part of the country decide that critical race theory is the curriculum we're not going to teach any, any other theory that might run counter to that. Um, the correct position on the gun debate is that, uh, all guns in America should be banned. If that, if, if the curriculum is determined by the majority in any community, could a, a school district like that exist in your opinion? 
I believe that we have two states that are requiring uh, the teaching of critical race theory. And I think that the crucial question is, I, I wouldn't say that you sh cannot teach critical race theory myself. The, the problem is that there's a difference between teaching about it as a theory to consider and teaching it as a system of belief that you must affirm, where you start to get into the compelled speech that is proscribed by West Virginia versus Barnett, you know, the sort of thought reform that we saw at the University of Delaware. Uh, that being said, as an educator, is this really developmentally an age-appropriate material? I happen to think that critical race theory is a rather esoteric academic theory that is of the graduate level variety, sort of for late night, you know, hash sessions um, and not introductory content for kids who uh, probably couldn't tell you with much accuracy if World War One happened before or after the Civil War. I think that they're, um, I, I think that kids who are exposed to it, it's really skipping ahead and I think it's confusing to them. I think they kind of are picking up on the wrong aspects of it and I don't consider it uh, an ideal learning exercise for, you know, pre-adolescence and adolescence myself. A friend of the organization of FIRES, that is, uh, Noam Dorman, who runs the Comedy Cellar, he also hosts a podcast, Comedy Cellar Podcast, which is a great podcast. I've been on it a number of times. Talks about how one of his sons uh, in school, I think he was a first grader maybe, came home from school one day and asked, he's he's uh, mixed race, he's um, Hispanic and white. Uh, and his dad, Noam, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, is the white parent. And the student came home one day and asked him, dad, are you mean to people? And he's like, what are you talking about? Am I mean to people? Well, it turns out that he was taught in school that white people are mean, essentially. And because his dad is white, uh, he thought he, he came home from that lesson thinking that his dad was mean. And I think that speaks to the idea that there are certain things that are just developmentally appropriate for students and certain things that that aren't, and maybe those sort of um, you know critical race theory, for example, which for a long time has been uh, living in the ivory tower or in higher education, is probably not a pr age appropriate for your kindergartner or first grader. I, I think a lot of times it is what interests the teacher instead of what is best for the student. And actually, if you, um, and I, I haven't, I've heard another case along the same lines, and I, I forget which state it is in, I could look it up quickly. But in any case, it was a, a black dad who went to his school board and, and begged them, please stop teaching my daughter to hate her white mom. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm white and Hispanic as well. And like, am, am I oppressing myself right now? Maybe I am, I don't know. But um yeah, these these incidents are are sometimes really heartbreaking, and that's one of them. And then there's another case along the same lines in Nevada where a black mom is suing, uh, and that's because her biracial son was asked to confess his white privilege, basically in class, and he refused to do it, and he was flunked. Um, I, and I think his grade had to be held up so he could graduate in the midst of this lawsuit. And you can look it up online if you're interested. Uh, it's uh, Gabrielle Clark versus Democracy Prep, I believe. So, um, yeah, and, and these are the sorts of situations where you really have to ask, I'm sorry, what was the lesson plan for today? And where does this fit into the state standards? Oh, they, yeah, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, there there is, if you look up the code of ethics for teachers, you're supposed to ask yourself a question before you do anything is, uh, whose needs are being met by my action, mine or the, the student's? And the answer, the only acceptable answer is supposed to be the student's needs. That's why you're paid money. You're not yeah. there to enact your worldview. It's, you know, kids are not a means to your desired ends. They're ends in themselves. That lawsuit that you referenced before, I, I think it's worth uh, reading a little bit of, uh, about it. You have, an, you, you have a couple of paragraphs in your book that I'll read here. Um, according to the family's lawsuit, William, the student in this case, was singled out and subjected to derogatory name-calling 
and hurtful labeling based on his physical appearance. His teacher delivered regular privilege checks for William, which his mother described as deliberate and protected, protracted harassment and emotional abuse. The classroom materials even implied that William's white father probably physically abused his black mother because according to his lessons, that's what white men do. When students, including William, attempted to eject, discussions were terminated and their speech effectively chilled. However, William refused to complete certain identity confession assignments or to avow certain politicized statements he could not in good conscience affirm, and that was enough for him to earn threats of a failing grade. Is, is, that, is that the extent of that case unusual? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, Nico. Um, I think that for every case we hear about, there are, you know, I think those are just the tip of the iceberg because there is such fear of coming forward, fear of retribution. Um, I, I'm really interested. When, when my kids were in school, they were subjected to a lot of anti-bullying training, which is a whole other interesting area of discussion because there are sort of these unlicensed people in groups who are sort of coming in the side door of schools and delivering semi-therapeutic uh, interventions that are not often well-received. I know that both of my daughters really despised their anti-bullying training, and it's not because they were inclined to be bullies. I think it was just low quality and pretty insipid and heavy-handed. And uh, what you know, and I think that Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt went into some of this in Coddling, which is the hypersensitization of students to any, you know, discomfort in school now is going to be perceived as bullying or some kind of harm. Uh, but now we have teachers who seem to be acting like bullies and, you know, labeling kids and using power to intimidate them or coerce them to do things that that they require them to do. So it's such a fascinating phenomenon that's played out, you know, in the last 15 years in, in K-12. Did it really get supercharged with the George Floyd protests of last oh, absolutely. summer? Absolutely. I think that a lot of, I think that this has been simmering low grade for decades and everyone knew it, but the thinking is often, well, let me just get my kid through and and then I don't have to be the one who stands up, even though it's, again, ironically, anti-bullying training is all about being an upstander, not a bystander. And we have so many bystanders who are just, you know, letting this low-grade fever percolate. Uh, but with the combination of the, uh, you know, the uh, unrest that took place after George Floyd and the COVID-induced... Um, ability to view what's going on in the classroom. I, th I think it was a double whammy of um, that, you know, we've gone suddenly from low grade chronic to uh, acute to an acute situation. And now people are standing up and speaking up. Well, I think the, the protests and the groundswell of activism that came around it gave teachers who were already inclined to activism in the classroom an opening to do so uh, and maybe cowed some administrators who would usually fight back against that sort of thing um, into silence because they didn't want to get labeled racist or, or whatever, you know, you label people who, who uh, buck the orthodoxy. You have, you, you talk a lot about meritocracy and the anti-test movement and some of the, how that, how that sort of intertwines with some of these themes, but you have one example that really brings out to me how some of this um, in classroom activism can really hurt students. You talk about a school district in Milwaukee uh, where out of 350 students at one of the high schools, Marshall High School, only one student is proficient in math and none are proficient in English. Uh, but despite that 0% proficiency rate, Marshall spent the first week of February, the entirety of the first week of February, getting students on board with the Black Lives Matter uh, agenda. So it, it seems like the priorities have shifted in a way and in, in ways that maybe aren't in the best interest of students. Although you would probably have some teachers say that the black lives matter movement is more important than, than good math scores, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and of course it makes perfect sense that teachers who are not covering the state required curriculum would not want testing either. So the anti-meritocracy, anti-test efforts go right in line with pushing ideology in the classroom because 
I mean, I guess the only way to test on it would be to measure attitudinal uh, belief systems, or at least the the profession of such belief systems. But, you know, things in the realm of attitudes and values typically uh, historically have always been in the realm of the family. And uh, you, you definitely have some family values that are being undermined by teachers in the classroom. And, you know, when I was a kid and my parents hand I me, mean, you're going to have a kid going to school, Nico, in five years. And when you let go of their hand and you turn them over to a teacher, you, you know, there has to be the trust that they will function in loco parentis in your absence. And you would not expect that a secular school, since we have separation of church and state in this country, would maybe undermine any religious beliefs or other value systems that you're trying to instill at home, which is where the secrecy comes in. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's the biggest debate that most of our listeners will be familiar with is the creationism, intelligent uh, design, uh, evolution debate. You know, the evolution portion of that debate seems to have won out in uh, in education and intelligent design isn't often taught. I don't recall that it was taught in my public school. I mean, at a certain point with all knowledge and maybe it's not applicable in that case, um, maybe it is, but you know, teachers need to make a determination as to what is included in the curriculum and what is not, what knowledge at least is disputed enough to present multiple sides and which is not. So how do teachers make that determination uh, with the understanding that there are some parents who will ob- object to almost anything um, because parents like humans have a lot of wacky beliefs, uh, outlier beliefs that can't always be reflected in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Despite rumors, parents actually are human. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that, um, first of all, teachers really aren't making this determination. Teachers are hired speech. That is what their speech is considered. And in a public school, it's government speech. They're not deciding what they're going to be covering. Their department head, uh, you know, coupled by the head of school, if it's a private school or by the district, which is has to meet diploma requirements for children to receive credit for sitting in the class. So the fact that some teachers are acting autonomously like this is exactly part of the problem. I I get asked, this is a a new angle that you brought up that I'm hearing lately, which is about the, it's reminding people of the evolution argument. How do we know when something, what is true? Uh, You know, I taught developmental psychology for a number of years and there is this idea of consensus reality. You know, how do you know when somebody's having a delusion uh, versus when someone is sane? And to a certain amount, it is democratically decided. Like I, I would give the example, if I went to my doctor 25 years ago and I said, I, I, I think that the government is listening into all of my phone calls. I think that they're monitoring everything that they do, uh, everything that I do. I probably would have been diagnosed with some sort of paranoid delusion. But if I went today and said, I think the government's keeping track of me, the you know, psychiatrist would probably say, oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, everyone knows that now. Uh, along the same lines with, evo- you know, evolution is an interesting topic. Uh, But I explain it this way. I actually had to teach some uh, natural selection, Darwin, because I I taught in a psychology department, developmental psychology in a college of education. And um, I knew in Lancaster County where I live that I probably I know that some of the people are very fundamentalist and that that some of them believe in creationism. And I would preface it by saying, well, we're going to cover Darwin right now and it's, uh, you know, natural selection and you don't have to believe it, but we're going to go over it and it's going to be on the test. So you're going to have to know it. And I think that that is really the difference. Um, that being said, another important caveat is, you know, Darwin, when I was taught, um, and, I, and, you know, when I was taught evolutionary biology by A.O. Wilson at Harvard, who's a very famous person in the field, you know, and I... Back then, Darwin was considered to be unimpeachable and 100% correct about everything. And the competing theory was Lamarck, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. And it was acquired adaptation, which basically means like if you work out really hard and you become really, really muscular, then your children will have bigger muscles than they would if you hadn't changed your behavior. And that was considered laughable back in the 1980s. Well, no more. I mean, since the field of epigenetics has evolved, has evolved, has developed, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've learned that there is, that maybe Darwin wasn't as right about everything as we once assumed. And Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, 
uh, was more right than we thought. And so there's always the hazard of assuming that knowledge is fixed and that we actually do understand what is absolutely true and what isn't. So that being said, yeah, we, we don't teach creationism in school, but I would never tell someone that their worldview is wrong. Uh, that's really not my business as an educator, but I'm going to cover what's in the curriculum. And in my curriculum, I had to cover how traits were uh, passed on, are passed on hereditarily. And that includes some you know, understanding of natural selection. So that's how curricula is decided. Uh, it's what's in the syllabus. The, you also talk in your book a little bit about the unbalance between the political party's representation in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about that? It seems like uh, a greater p- percentage of uh, classroom instruction is overseen by uh, uh, teachers who, who voted for Democratic candidates. Well, I'm mostly worried that we have teachers coming out of the ed schools now who have not been exposed to the competing view and therefore can't even interrogate their own positions. You know, a teacher is supposed to function as an honest broker, uh, which means like if I'm going to buy car insurance, I don't want to go buy car insurance and get, I'm not going to get objective opinions from the nationwide salesman. He's going to try and sell me nationwide. And Teachers, so they're going to ed schools where the numbers are overwhelmingly tilted to one side to the point where it's really impacting the education in the classroom. And um, as boomers are retiring, the younger teachers coming in, I do feel have not had uh, sufficient exposure to competing views to be able to function uh, flexibly, mentally enough to, um, you know, adequately cover the opposing sides. And so then you're really functioning at what is the lowest level of so-called education. If you've ever seen Bloom's taxonomy, the very lowest level is memorization. And that just means, you know, just recite what I tell you and spit it back at me. Uh, And if we are only presenting one side and expecting students to repeat it, then uh, that is, I I used to get penalized as a teacher when I would be evaluated. They'd be like, you need higher order activities in this classroom to promote you know, intellectual rigor and, uh, and robustness and memorization is, is the very bottom tier. And that's all this is. It's, it's kind of like pre-chewed meat. Like nobody wants, you, you don't want your food pre-chewed. You want to chew it over yourself. Yeah. I mean, you want to, they, they do. They, like, well, you memorize something and, and then you're going to forget it, but you're not going to internalize it in the same way as you would, uh, with someone who actually has to chew on it for a while, you know, who has, who has to learn the basis for it. Um, yeah, just basic John Stuart Mill, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. So I think that a lot of these teachers know little of that. I, I've always, I, We had Lyle Asher on the podcast a while back to kind of investigate the education school phenomenon. Uh, but it sounds like you went back to school. You went back for a master's in education at some point. Did I read that from your I was actually certified alternate route, which I highly recommend. This is um, a lot of teachers go through an education school where half of your classes are ed pedagogy training and the other half are in the field, like, say, English literature or science. Well, I, I have a degree in English literature as an undergrad, and then I did alternate route certification, which is where the school hired me and I was supervised very closely and paid to earn my certificate. I did go back to get a a doctorate in English literature. I thought I would become uh, an English professor. So I, uh, but I quickly dropped out because of these pedagogies that uh, had found their way into academia from the time I graduated as an undergrad. And at that time it was called critical theory, uh, which when I was in school mostly was feminist critical theory. And it basically amounted to looking at a book and just dismissing it because it was written by a man. And I thought, well, this is easy to do and requires nothing. And it reached the absurd proportions in its extremity where they would argue that reading a restaurant menu was equivalent to reading a masterpiece like War and Peace. And I just thought, I'm not doing this. Uh, this is, I was even being paid to go to school at the time. And I said, I, and I dropped out and I'm, I'm very glad I did, but I am conversant enough with these theories, deconstructionism, postmodernism, you know, the French, I guess, post-structuralists to know that I know it when I see it and the problems that they bring. And I can't believe, and yet I'm not surprised that it is now infecting uh, 
K-12, right down to K and pre-K. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of an easy ideology, right? I mean, it tells you essentially what is good and what is bad. And all the only challenge you have is identifying if, if that person fits that characteristic or not. Um, and that's all you need to do in order to dismiss them. And then uh, it bucks no criticism as well. And uh, you have a good paragraph kind of describing critical theory or critical race theory that I'd like to read uh, uh, here. Here's the thing. While it is a theory, it is not the theory, and it is definitely not the only theory. Whether or not it is included in the existing curriculum is a reasonable discussion, but it is unreasonable to assert that it should replace and exclude all other theories. It mustn't consume all the oxygen in the classroom. It shouldn't preempt, conclude, or disallow all other discussions. Uh, it definitely shouldn't prevent and preclude the possibility of any dif- disagreement, nor is it exempt from analysis, discussion, and criticism like every other academic attempt at explaining the world. When it attempts to do so, it interferes with the pedagogical function of a classroom, which includes allowing the exchange of ideas. And there's another paragraph who says uh, that this theory, more or less in particular, bucks criticism and shuts down debate and is more allowing of censorship than or demanding of censorship in certain cases than than other theories and that's where it presents kind of the free speech free expression uh indoctrination problem yeah i mean uh, the, the way in which it operates is totalitarian um and the you know it derives a lot of its energy from herbert marcuse's repressive tolerance which basically says we can tolerate anything except viewpoints from the right essentially is what he argues um, and so it's it's a bit suicidal to allow uh, a theory to come in that disallows you to disagree with the theory. It's unfalsifiable in that there is no circumstance in which it will allow itself to be disproven. It calls names, basically, which you know brings me back to the whole bullying argument, uh, which is what well. We it, it it also argues. Um that logic and reason are a construct of privilege and oppression as well. So if you try to dismantle it or argue against it or falsify it based on logic or reason, then you are accused of, uh, being an oppressor and, uh, there, you know, critical race theory has a theory for that as well. Well, and yet I notice ironically that they use their free speech rights to make these and they do make arguments. So they are using arguments to dismantle the idea of arguments, which I find hilarious. <laughs> yeah, well, in the higher education context, to be clear for our listeners, uh, you know, this is a prevalent theory, one that should be debated and discussed. Uh, it shouldn't be used to shut down dissent, uh, people who disagree with it. Uh, but I think what you're arguing in your book and kind of where we're getting into this is it's being used as a tool for thought reform. Um, it's being as a, used as a tool for indoctrination where uh, activist teachers are inserting it into the curriculum curriculum and there there is no space for student dissent or disagreement or investigation uh there you hate to think that there's ever a golden age of instruction um but one of the ways that our co-founder alan charles coors kind of got into this space and i've told this story on the podcast before is he had a professor at princeton marxist professor at princeton who uh assigned an essay i forget what the essay was about uh, had something to do with, you know, uh, socialism or Marxism or whatnot. And all the students wrote a, a response that they thought he wanted to hear uh, as a Marxist. And so he gets the essays back from all the students. They all parrot what they thought he wanted to hear. And he says, no, 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 no. This isn't how we do education here. You're just telling me what you think I want to hear. So what I'm going to do is assign to you the book that I think I disagree with most uh, in the past, you know, however many decades on this topic. And I want you to not, I want you to parrot back its arguments. And that book ended up being Frederick Hyatt's The Road to Serfdom. And Alan Charles Coolers talked about how the assignment of that book and the requirement that he parrot back its arguments uh, changed the course of his intellectual life. Um, and I think a lot of us who are interested in the world of ideas, that's the exact type of teacher instructor that would inspire us, um, that is the reason we got into the world of ideas. Um, uh, but it sounds like hopefully it's a minority of teachers, um, 
are less interested in that and more interested in forced conformity amongst their students. So by way of closing here, you know, what are some of the ways in which teachers, excuse me, although I guess it could be teachers, parents are fighting back. Um, you know, what, what do you recommend as a former educator working within the system? They do, uh, if they're concerned about the environment that their students are inhabiting within the classroom. Sure. Before I go over a couple of solutions, I want to just address what you just said. I mean, so interesting that um, it was it was Alan, right, Chorus, who rem- he remembers that teacher so fondly all these years later. And I, I take comfort in the fact that the medium is the message and that I don't think a lot of students are learning what many of these activist teachers think that they are teaching. I think that you learn from how people treat you. And these kids and their parents don't like how they're being treated uh, in the classroom when the thought is restricted and when you are being coerced into saying things you don't really believe. That's what you remember. I'm reminded of what Maya Angelou said, which is you don't remember what someone says, you remember how they made you feel. And I don't think that most kids and parents feel very good about what's going on in schools right now with certain teachers. Well, some um, of it is, it seems to me, just an effort to resegregate. You're having students separate in the classroom based on their their race. Uh, you know, that is the definition of segregation. Now, theory, of course, has an argument around that saying, you know, it's, it's race plus privilege or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, some of these schools might inadvertently walk into some legal trouble uh, as far as race discrimination goes as well. Yeah, some of them have. There's a school in Atlanta where the principal thought she was doing a good thing by assigning all of the black children to the same classrooms and was oh, by one of the black parents. And, um, and and I can even understand that reasoning. I think she thought that they would be able to get some sort of special attention or something that way. But no, you can't do that. Um, yeah. So in terms of solutions, there's several things that I would recommend. And of course, I have a lot more ideas in the book. Uh, and I'm so heartened by the number of parents who are coming forward and showing up at school board meetings. So obviously, that's a big thing. We, I think there has been this complacency that and maybe misplaced trust that has allowed this situation to reach the point that it has. So stay involved, um, insist on total transparency from your school. I think that you will need to inoculate, since we're talking a lot about vaccines these days, you need to inoculate your kids against this, which is very difficult uh, the younger they are. But, you know, you're going to have to be very watchful and you're going to have to debrief them afterwards. What did you talk about in school today? What did the teacher say? And when you start to hear concerning ideologies rearing their heads, that's a great learning opportunity. I mean, if you're smart, it's the problem is that these theories are so esoteric that busy parents maybe don't have the vocabulary or the um you know, the deep knowledge in it to be able to understand exactly what's going on with all the, the jargon that is being used. And um, and that's what they count on. So unfortunately, you are probably will have to educate yourself on this if you have a kid in school nowadays. Uh, know your learning standards. Go to your school, go to your state uh, Department of Education website. What is the learning standards for your child's grade in different classes? Um, what is the, what do the codes of ethics say? And if your teachers aren't living up to those codes of ethics, then what is the administration doing about it? Um, of course, I recommend our curriculum that we've put together at FIRE, which is standards aligned and which uh, covers the reasons why we allow competing views in the classroom, the philosophical reasons, the historical reasons, and uh, the legal reasons why free speech is, um, you know, how it's under attack and why we need to defend it. And I would also say find an ally because it's a very scary thing to do, but there are more people who agree with you than you realize. Um, And that will help to uh, develop your courage, which you're going to need in this fight. Yeah. It, it's very helpful to know that you're not isolated and you're not alone. You have, you have in certain circumstances, the emperor has, has no clothes or is wearing no clothes problem, right? It's like everyone sees the problem, but no one wants to identify the problem. As a result, you get this sort of weird um, spiral of silence. Um, and all it takes is like kind of that one court jester, right? Um, don't want to call the dissenter the court jester, but the person who's who can say the truth about the emperor 
um, in order. But you do feel like a court jester because you're sitting there going, "Am I crazy or is this really happening?" You know, you sometimes it's the stories are so ridiculous you can't even. Uh, you can't even believe it. And, and and I would say, too, that don't assume that the teacher is a problem. Some teachers are doing this under duress. Maybe the, uh, you know, um, you may have allies among the teachers. And I do think that there's there are some who just don't know any better, but can learn how to become a more balanced, uh, you know, classical, classically trained educator. And then there are the true believers. And I, I would I don't want to speculate on what number the true believers are. I do think it's increasing as the ed schools have shifted to the left, but um, I, I believe they are still a minority. So FIRE's high school outreach program, as Bonnie mentions, has a lot of resources. If you're interested in those resources, uh, get in touch with us. I mean, you can email me at the show and I can connect you with the appropriate person at FIRE, so to speak, at the fire.org. Um, check out Bonnie's book. Uh, maybe give it to other parents in your school district or in your neighborhood as well. Uh, you know, the goal here is to foster enlightenment values, I guess, within uh, the education process, the, you know, to avoid indoctrination and thought reform and to feel, to inculcate an environment where students and parents feel free to speak out, um, feel free to challenge. You know, that's one of the best ways you learn is to debate and discuss. Um, but increasingly we're in an environment, which is the environment that John Stuart Mill warned about, uh, of orthodoxy and conformity, uh, which is not the American way. Um, and is not the way toward a vibrant and effective education either. So Bonnie, I appreciate you, uh, coming onto the show. How can people best get in touch with you and, and the program? Well, all of our materials are available free to uh, educators or parents to use at home if they want at the fire.org slash K-12. And you can email me at highschooloutreach at the fire.org. Bonnie, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. That was Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder and her book out September 14th, that's a Tuesday, is Undoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by visiting us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We take email feedback at speak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>